The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome back. One quick announcement before we get started. Uh, the uh, teaching fellows and I have... Uh, uh, in, res in response to a few gentle inquiries, uh, have come up with a plan for making your problem sets and projects a little bit easier, getting you some time. Take a look at the website and uh, talk to your teaching fellows. But basically, problems, there will be no problem set six. They will be combined with problem set five. And so you'll have a full three weeks to work on your project, tripling your project time, uh, assuming you haven't done anything so far, which hopefully all of you have done a lot so far. Okay, so uh, we were co correlating absolute levels of messenger RNA abundance in protein, uh, messenger RNA protein. And here the, uh, this study was subjected to a little bit of not, not terribly controversial critique. Uh, what you're seeing here uh, is at very, if you have the very low abundance proteins, you might have what looks like some correlation. Then you add a few more low abundance proteins, so this is just some fluctuation. And uh, adding proteins should improve your correlation coefficient, but if they're of low uh, reliability in either the protein or the messenger RNA scale, or if there isn't correlation between the two for biological reasons, um, then your correlation coefficient could drop just at random. But as you add, as you get up to adding all the proteins, uh, you could either be dominated by a few uh, high abundance proteins that fit this uh, perfectly, the messenger RNA protein abundance. Uh, anyway, some of the critiques of this had to do with the assumptions underlying the Pearson linear correlation coefficient, which in calculating the statistical significance of some of these analyses in the previous slide, uh, make uh, an underlying assumption that you have a normal or Gaussian bell curve. And uh, this is, you don't need to do this in order to, there are a variety of measures of correlation which do not require this parametric assumption. Um, and there, there, there are tests for the, how close the normal uh, distribution is. Um, deviations from normality can be of all types. For example, you can have slightly flatter or slightly sharper than normal. You can have skewed to the left or to the right, and so forth. Some of these, like skewing, can be corrected by a log transformation, where you simply take the logarithm or some other transformation, and uh, log being by, by far the most common and theoretically justified, and now it becomes normal. And then you can do a statistical test. Uh, as it turns out, this is not a huge effect, but they use it um, in order to develop, uh, to point out that you can, when you're testing these, especially the low abundance uh, end of the spectrum, you might want to use a rank test. And a rank test here is illustrated that you uh, take, if you have, say, two columns, this is a series of pairs uh, of, of intensities of uh, messenger RNA and protein, say, columns X and column Y. Uh, down in the lower right-hand corner of slide 37. 
And let's say the abundances, the absolute abundances for protein X is 1666 and corresponding RNA Y, which would be 8, 2, 3, and 4. Now you want to ask whether they're correlated or not. And what you do is you rank them. And so the rank of X is 1, 3, 3, 3. Here it's high breaker. The way you deal with a tie is you give them all the rank of the middle one of the series in the tie. And uh, you get a rank for Y. And the total number in this case is 4. And so when you have these, um, um, the rank tests, score is basically the sum of the square of all the differences in rank. So the difference in rank here would be 1 minus 4. Um, uh, it would be three, 3 squared, and you take the sum of all those squares, and you plug it in as this S, which is going to go into a correlation coefficient similar to in, in values and in properties to the Pearson, but now not making assumptions about the parametrics. You're just talking about ranks, the non-parametric test. And then the n is the total number, uh, and you apply that formula. Now, they applied that formula to this exactly the same data set, or very similar, actually, um, data set. So another critique they had was that using the, uh, uh, the, the better measure of the, of the uh, protein abundance would be uh, using a radioactive tracer in the protein and then measuring quantitatively the, uh, in the intensity uh, of the of beta particles released from the methionines in the proteins. So they, uh, making that uh, change and comparing it to the same messenger RNA uh, assessment, they got this fairly linear correlation over uh, three logs um, using the, the, the their the Pearson correlation coefficient, which they didn't entirely approve of, they got a, a 0.76, which is a modest, uh, a, it's a significant uh, linear trend. And using their uh, rank method, 0.74, which is basically uh, very similar, and, and found no significant difference between the top 33 and the bottom 33 proteins, undermining the previous claim that there was a that there was less linearity at one end than another. You might a priori expect that the, the least abundant messengers of proteins would have a little bit of either biological or instrumental noise. Nevertheless, this group found that it was a, a good correlation. Now these two plot the plot in the next slide looks similar, but it's but it's uh, really quite different. Here the y axis remains uh, the protein abundance measured by this uh, uh, S35 labeling. But now we're getting back to this game of asking to what extent can we pr make predictions about the properties of the proteins, in this case their abundance, based on their use of, the, of abundant codons. And a way of, of quantitating this is the codon adaptation index um, sh shown in the uh, lower left part of the slide is you have a, it's, a, it's the log of the codon adaptation index is a sum of all the frequencies, F sub i, of each of the codons, where i is uh, the 61 non-stop codons out of 64 total. And the W sub i is a weighting factor where it's the ratio of the frequency of 
codon I, um, let's say a leucine codon, there are six different leucine codons, and the, the, say the first one, the W sub 1, is going to be the ratio of the frequency of that first codon to whichever one happens to be the most abundant one. Could be the first one or could be one of the other six. And so that's the formula that is used. Um, and you can see, again, a nice linear trend where, indeed, the most abundant proteins do tend to use the most abundant codons. The codons that you find in, uh, that are most abundant, both at transfer RNA level and in usage in abundant proteins. Now, just as with RNAs, you can measure them on an absolute scale or a ratio scale. The advantage of, a, in, a, in principle, if you have it on an absolute scale, you can always calculate ratios from it, but not necessarily vice versa. If you have ratios, you can't always get to absolute. So that's one advantage to absolute. Uh, if you're looking at things like codon adaptation index or messenger RNA or a variety of other um, motivations, for you need to do it uh, on the absolute scale. But there, an argument can be made for doing it on a ratio metric or, or relative scale in the sense that you can establish internal standards which are more precise. You can really uh, eliminate many of the systematic errors that can creep in uh, due to differential ionization in the case of mass spectrometry and so on. Now, with RNA, the, the way we did this ratio testing, ratio quantitation, is we would label one messenger RNA red or psi 5 and the other one green and, uh, and then by using uh, selective filtration in the, in the imaging, you, can, you could get ratios. With mass spectrometry, you don't have colors, uh, but somehow you want to get the same idea across. And so what you do is you have masses. And so what you want to do is encode them in something that will not change the chemistry, but will change the mass. Not change the mass too much, because if you change too much, you might change the chemistry, or you might not be able to find the shadow peak, the second peak. So basically what we're doing is uh, we have a, a, what we want to do is take cell state one, label it with the light ICAT reagent, cell state two, label it with a heavy, meaning uh, more uh, neutrons in it, and then mix them together as early as possible. And then all these steps that could have little systematic errors in it, will be the errors will be equally distributed to each of the um, peptides that have been labeled, and then uh, measure the mass. And for each mass, you'll have two peaks that are separated by whatever the difference in mass between the labeling agents. So what are the properties that you want of a labeling agent? One is that it should, it should react covalently so it will survive all these mass, these fractionation steps and mass uh, detection steps. So it has to be, in this case, style specific. You want, you want a way of pulling out only those peptides that have been modified. All the rest are just going to contaminate your mass spectrometry. Um, and in between, you want something where you can differentially label heavier light atoms. In the original proof of concept, these were done with hydrogen, ion, uh, hydrogen atoms versus deuterium. They differ by one atomic mass unit per position. Uh, however, uh, you will see in the next slide, this, this has the unfortunate consequence that, that hydrogen and deuterium actually are not only mass distinguishable, but they also have different chemical properties. There's a, an isotope effect that's detectable in a variety of chemistries, including 
re retention time on the um, HPLC. This has since been upgraded where you're having C13 versus C12. Now, that's a much more subtle difference, uh, same mass difference. You have nine different uh, carbon atoms in here, and that works better. In addition, there's a way that you can cleave off the biotin after it's done its job, where you've, with avidin, you've selected all those peptides that have been modified, and then acid cleave off that to clean up the mass spec. So here's an example where you have the difference in uh, M over Z of four uh, M over Z units between these heavy and light peaks, and uh, the ratio of these two is something you can use for every, essentially every peptide where the, 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 the pair of peaks is in an uncluttered part of the mass spectrum. And here's evidence where you can see that on retention time, in the horizontal axis on the, on the left-hand side of the slide 41, uh, you can see this little red line shows how the centroids of the set of peaks should line up and has been displaced through the chemical effects of that, uh, adding a few neutrons. Okay. So the lesson here is that hydrogen and deuterium are not necessarily chemically identical. The, the conceit of isotopes is that they really should be uh, uh, chemically identical, but not. Uh, but really, it's better if you work with heavier uh, atoms to introduce neutrons. Now, so what can we do with this ratio metric? Uh, acid. Now we're going to, just like before we compared absolute protein levels to absolute RNA levels, now we're going to measure ratios. And to do ratios, we have to have two different conditions. Um, so ab another advantage of absolutes, you can, you can do it all under one condition. Here, the two conditions that were chosen for this proof of concept experiment were glucose and galactose. Plus, that is to say, growing at plus and minus galactose. Galactose is a, uh, a nice... Uh, nicely understood metabolic and regulatory system in yeast. Uh, it, it fits in with what we know about the, uh, the uh, central carbon metabolism and induces a set of genes in blue here that are required for galactose catabolism uh, to, to produce energy. The most strongly ones are way off in the upper right-hand corner here, Gal 7, 10, and 1. These are the core uh, catabolic, catabolic enzymes. Uh, but almost all of the named blue triangles have some kind of story like that. Um, and these all in the upper right quadrants are, uh, have a high log 10 ratio of expression up to three logs uh, 10 to the third fold induction. Uh, similarly, or at the other end of the spectrum, in the lower left-hand quadrant, are respiratory genes um, that are involved in say, uh, 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 oxidative phosphorylation, and these are uh, moderately depressed under galactose uh, conditions, and, and that's why they're in the lower right-hand corner. And, and then the green ones are, are, neither go are not quite along this diagonal. Their, their, their messenger RNA is increased, but their protein uh, expression is not, and these are the ribosomal protein genes um, and this is another phenomenon that's, that's uh, well documented in the system. Okay. Now those are examples of how you can use absolute and, rel and why you're motivated to use absolute and relative measures for proteins in messenger RNAs. Now, these are all treating as if 
just like before, I said that messenger RNAs, we might lump all together all splice forms and call that the gene product, although you know better. And the same thing with proteins, you might lump together all the protein splice forms. And, and not only that, but for a particular protein splice form, there are many different post-synthetic modifications, such as proteolysis and uh, phosphorylation. And so we're going to talk about these modifications very briefly uh, to hopefully whet, whet your appetite for one of the most exciting parts of proteomics, and uh, whether it's identification or quantitation. So we've already mentioned radioisotopic labeling as a way of quantitating using uh, various uh, 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 radioactive sulfur, you can use, whether it's stable isotopes or radioactive isotopes, you can use these to do pulse labeling to monitor uh, a, a dynamic process. Um, P32 is, a, if you're in particular, if you want to enrich for the, um, some of the most uh, well-studied and significant post-synthetic modifications involved in signal transduction. You can enrich for particular types of amino acids. We already showed that the cysteines, which is kind of an arbitrary amino acid chosen for the ICAT uh, uh, ratiometric method, um, that was chosen because it has interesting react reactivity, not because it's intrinsically important um, uh, low abundance regulatory molecules. Phosphates, on the other hand, can be very important, uh, and you might need to enrich because the, these important regulatory uh, phosphorylation sites can get lost in the snow of all the rest of the peptides in the proteome. This can either be done, this enrichment can either be done by immobilized metals such as uh, iron and uh, gallium and so forth. Uh, this is called IMAC for mobilized metal affinity chromatography. Or you can have uh, antibodies that are specific particular phosphopeptide, particular phosphoamino acids. You have lectins for carbohydrates um, as front ends for mass spectrometry. Even when we do P32 labeling uh, metabolically, where the P32 will only label the subset of the proteins which are phosphorylated, um, it is still the case that some of the most interesting regulatory cell cycle proteins are not detected above background because there are many ab abundant proteins, such as ribosomal proteins, central carbon met metabolic enzymes, um, which are needed in high abundance, but are also needed, need to have phosphorylation. And so you get this forest of, of, uh, of phosphoproteins, um, such as ribosomal and metabolic, which make it hard to detect the regulatory ones. So labeling is not a panacea, and we'll come, uh, I think you'll see as we go through the protein modifications in mass spectrometry that the multidimensional purification really is the way that you get away from the ribosomal proteins and the highly abundant metabolic proteins, which are interesting, but you need a way of both studying them and the regulatory uh, low-level proteins. Here are some examples of natural crosslinks. You can think of this as a special class of post-synthetic modification. Uh, instead of having a phosphate glomming on, you have two different peptides, either intramolecularly within a protein or intermolecularly between proteins. And you should be highly motivated to study these because they tell you something not only about protein structure, three-dimensional structure, which was the topic last time, but protein-protein interactions. And not just theoretically what proteins might interact with other proteins or, you know, 
or might bind in vitro, could be an in vitro artifact, or in yeast, in a two-hybrid system, could be a yeast-two-hybrid artifact. These are actual covalent, uh, caught in the act, in, in vivo protein interactions. And, and some of these are, you know, most of these are very well documented. By far the most uh, common one and of great significance to protein tertiary stability uh, in the class of proteins which are extracellular. These include extracellular domains of membrane proteins and secreted proteins and uh, in particular because there the oxidation state is such that the, that the, that this, that this sulfur-sulfur bond is stable while intracellular tends to be more reducing atmosphere and so that the, these disulfides uh, have trouble forming. Collagen has a lysine crosslink. Ubiquitin has a C-terminus to lysine crosslink. Fibrin involved in uh, blood clotting has a glutamine to lysine and so on. Uh, as your, uh, some of your proteins age, you will find the glucose that's in high concentrations in your blood will glycolate the, the lysine residues and this is um, part of the process by which these proteins are eventually uh, lose their function and are cleared. Protein nucleic acid interactions we've been talking about so far are non-covalent. Some of them are covalent. For example, when you want to prime uh, de novo uh, polymer synthesis, DNA synthesis. Okay. So what are the consequences for the mass spec algorithms we've been talking about? Say de novo sequencing or or finding a, a, a peptide spectrum in your database. Well, you can see the masses are going to be fairly straightforward. Here's some examples of masses and some peptides and some crosslink peptides. On the top uh, right, you'll see one intramolecular crosslink between a lysine and a lysine, and an intermolecular between two peptides. Now, each of these peptides in this display. These are just simple masses. These are not fragments. These are not subfragments. So you expect these to just be triptych products. So each of their C terminals should be either arginine, R, or lysine, K. R, K, K, R, and so forth. And so you can see this is two peptides, one ending in R, one ending in K. So let's look in detail at this, at this uh, example where you have an intramolecular crosslink. And you can see that as uh, you cleave at each of these peptide bonds generating B ions from the N terminus and Y ions from the, N, the C terminus, you'll see that, that there's a special case in, this, in the region that's defined between the two crosslinks in that any peptide bond cleavage that might occur in the gas phase when colliding with argon or some other inert gas uh, will, will break the chain as usual but the chain won't fall apart because it's got actually two connections. One is through the pe normal peptide bond and the other is through this crosslink. So cleavage is all through in here. It takes two hits to get separation of these and two hits is, un is unlikely. And so you'll tend to see the B ions and the Y ions up until, right up until you hit the cro first crosslink amino acid and then you lose it. So that's one of the complications that you have from crosslinks. The other one that you have when you have, say, crosslinking two peptides as might occur we have an interaction between different proteins, is you'll now have two sets of B ions and two sets of Y ions, as if just having B and Y in the same spectrum isn't enough. Now you've got a, 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 a two of each. And even though you don't have this cycle to worry about, 
you have uh, a full set. But there is a uh, algorithm that uh, Tim Chen and others have developed for dealing with that in very clean cases. And here's an example of actually using the crosslinks that you get from mass spectrometry as a fairly inexpensive set of constraints that you can use for getting distances either intramolecularly in this case or conceivably intermolecularly. And the, di the, the constraints, you can't get any bigger than the crosslink distance. You know the, the chemical structure of the crosslinker, and so you can say these two amino acids with their side chains and so forth that are reacting have to be this length or shorter. And that's what these little yellow lines indicate in this uh, fibroblast growth factor 2, FGF2, where the crystal structure of FGF2 is known. And these constraints will greatly aid your ability to find distant homologs or to increase the precision of your, of your homology modeling in three dimensions. Um, the shorter your crosslink, obviously the better, the, the tighter your constraints, but it might reduce the efficiency of crosslinking if you're doing this as artificial crosslinking as opposed to, uh, if you have a natural crosslinking, you're basically stuck with whatever the natural. Th this, was a, this was an artificial crosslinking um, with a chemical crosslinker, bifunctional crosslinker. That's just a reminder, this is not, uh, this is a different way of, of showing some of the things. We had a scatter plot last class, which, which showed that as you increase the sequence identity in homology modeling, up to 100% on the vertical axis, you decrease your uncertainty and the, and the observed root mean square deviation that you get between two structures. So if they're, if they're better than 80%, then you have uh, in the order of one angstrom deviation, which is quite acceptable for many purposes. Now, if you want to do threading to very distantly related structures, you know, getting down around 30% is getting, you know, 25% is getting to the twilight zone where you really can't believe it. It's off by uh, too many angstroms. But these constraints in the previous slide could help you out in either doing the homology modeling or doing a threading where you're searching through your favorite sequence through a database of uh, three-dimensional structures to ask which three-dimensional structure is closest to. Now that FGF2, we had two slides back with all those constraints, can be run through this threading algorithm where you run the sequence through the database illustrated here. This is horizontal, you know, the uh, various rows of uh, different structures here. The fold family is in the second column from the left. The sequence identity of, the, of our search sequence, which is FGF2, against all these three-dimensional structures, the percent identity here, 98.6 is basically, that's the same structure. That's the trivial uh, example. Its threading rank is number one, as it should be, since it's exactly the same structure, almost exactly the same structure. The constraint error, of course, is going to be zero because, uh, you know, all the, the three-dimensional structure and all the crosslinks work to that structure. But an interesting one now, this has been ranked by the constraint error, not by the threading rank. So, and so you can ask, um, does this improve the hits? And the next one down is uh, FGF2 compared to IL-1 data. And they do have the same fold family. We know that from three-dimensional structure. And the percent identity is way below the, the, the usual cutoff where you can't infer from threading or sequencing. In fact, the threading rank is five. This is not the second best thread. 
but the constraint error is zero, and so if you combine the high, the good threading rank and the constraint error, then you would put this as your best uh, distant homolog, 12% to 13% sequence identity. And, it, and of course, it's beating out better threading ranks because it has fewer constraint errors. So you can see how powerful these constraints might be, and it's certainly, uh, you know, you just need to evaluate whether just exactly how cost-effective the mass spectrometry is. Now, the last topic today, uh, sort of in the, in the realm of protein modifications and interactions, are how we quantitate metabolites. Now, you can see that we've got some uh, momentum here on quantitating proteins and RNAs, and so what are the issues that are slightly different for metabolites? In slide 52, summarizes some of these, you have... Uh, when you break open a cell to isolate messenger RNA or proteins, there is you, the rate at which degradative enzymes act is on the order of, you know, seconds. Uh, that's the rate at which they go. While many of other metabolic processes take on the order of milliseconds to microseconds, very rapid kinetics, and so as the cell starts to get a little bit sick on the second range, all these enzymes are, re are scrambling the, the metabolites' uh, concentrations. So, that you, so you have these rapid changes. The detection methods are historically idiosyncratic. They might be enzyme-linked, where, where you'll have, in order to detect a metabolite, you have a series of enzymes that result in some fluorescent or luminescent uh, assay. Or they could be uh, gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, NMR, mass spectrometry, and so forth. The good news is there are usually fewer metabolites than there are RNAs and proteins. There could be 30,000 some RNAs and proteins, typically only 1,000 or so metabolites, even in the more exotic, the uh, metabolically in in enabled, such as E. coli. Um, here, uh, from their various databases, uh, EcoPsych, um, WIT, KEG, and so on, <coughs> which which integrate these information about metabolites with the enzymes that act upon them. Here we're just looking at the kind of the, the sort of mass range that we have. Typical mass range, they're, they're very small compared to proteins and RNAs, uh, most of them being around 200 atomic mass units, and many of them having absolutely identical mass, that is to say they have atom for atom exactly the same composition, even though it's arranged in three dimensions very differently. For example, isoleucine and leucine, as their names might imply, have exactly the same mass no matter how many significant digits you put on them. And this is illustrated by actual data um, on uh, isoleucine and leucine. These are high, the supposedly highly purified versions uh, commercially available of isoleucine and leucine mixed together here and run out in these two dimensions of mass on the horizontal axis and retention time and hydrophobic separation, now not of peptides but of amino acids, metabolites. And you can see how that the, even though they are identical in mass, uh, as shown on the previous slide, around 131, uh, they are separable in the by their uh, hydrophobicity. They have the same atomic composition, but they are separable just by this hydrophobic separation. And you can see in the commercial preps, there are a variety of uh, contaminating molecules that co-migrate in, in the reverse phase uh, dimension, presumably because something like reverse phase is used for purifying them commercially. 
So there are basically three ways of, dis of distinguishing molecules that have the same mass. The one in the previous slide was separating them by another property, like retention time on the hydrophobic properties. Another one is, is secondary fragmentation, just as we could fragment peptides by collision in the gas phase with some inert gas, we can do this with metabolites. And so two things that have the same mass uh, may have a different fragmentation pattern. And you can see, again, you can cleave at every particular position, and here are two different aspects of two different labs, slightly different methodology, showing fragmentation in almost every uh, carbon bond. The third method by which you can uh, distinguish um, compounds that have exactly the same mass. In this case, this is the most extreme case. These compounds have the same uh, have the same mass. They actually not only have the same chemical composition, the same atomic composition, they actually have the same chemical structure. Their three dimensions are the same. Their mass is the same. What it is is this, let's, let's say the red is a carbon-13 and the green or the carbon-12. You can have the carbon-13 in different positions on this, say, this glucose molecule. So they, it has the same three-dimensional structure, the same mass. It's just you move the position of the C13 to different positions. This is actually an interesting case. When you have uh, natural abundance glucose, where you have C13 trace amounts, it can, it can be positioned on various different carbon atoms. But you can still tell where it is by when it when it uh, is now not broken down in the gas phase by collision-induced dissociation, but it's broken down in the cell, it goes through different pathways. And this is an example that we're going to be talking about pathways nonstop uh, for the next three sessions. But here's an example of central carbon metabolism where you start with glucose, glucose 6-phosphate in the upper uh, left-hand corner of this network diagram, and you end up with carbon dioxide down in the lower left. And it can go through various pathways through... Um, uh, ribulose or down through um, three carbons and each of these three and two carbon breakdown products can have uh, the labeled atom the mass tagged atom in different positions and as this quote uh, from the literature points out that when you want to study the fluxes through the pathway by monitor you can actually do a pulse or a, a, a stable uh, steady state labeling with uh, isotopic labels, and you can monitor the fluxes through these pathways, but you need to take into account all the different ways that it, you can go through the pathways, especially when you're doing metabolic cycles, like the TCA cycle, or uh, you have to think, think through all the multiple turns. Now, in principle, that kind of metabolic tracing can be done uh, either with mass spectrometry or with uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. When you do quantitative 2D mag nuclear magnetic resonance, you're basically looking at this, the, the uh, shifts in the spectral quantities for the carbon-13s, remember we were talking about carbon-13 labeling, and the, the normal, most abundant uh, protons. The, um, and the, sh the chemical shifts here that you get are due to the exact chemical environment of this proton or this carbon-13, uh, for, say, the alpha, um, for the, each of these amino acids, alpha and betas. And 
each of these little clusters are schematic for the intensity of, of this particular um, these particular atoms that you're monitoring by their isotope effects on the uh, NMR. Here, the the odd number of uh, nucleons is is critical to the detection. Okay, so if you know the the structure of the network, then you can use that that knowledge, and you know which of these atoms go into which parts. Then you can use this to quantitate the uh, fluxes through any part point in the network. On the other hand, if you don't, if you only know part of the network, then you can use this way of the tracking to slowly piece together um, uh, how the network must go. Most of this has been, was worked out well before uh, genomics and our current systems biology methods, and so there aren't real algorithms for doing this as far as I know, although there certainly is opportunity for doing it. Now this is measuring, remember this ratios versus absolute amounts. This is measuring not only ratios of metabolite concentrations, this is not metabolite concentrations, but fluxes. So, so with metabolites, you can measure uh, concentrations or fluxes, absolute or ratios, all, of, all four of those combinations. Now let's say, in, again, in principle, if you can measure absolute concentrations, you can measure ratios, and you can measure ratios of fluxes. So how would you measure absolute concentrations? So remember we said that one of the problems was that as soon as you start perturbing a cell uh, in microseconds, you can get changes. But well, one way to do this is without lysing the cells, you can, you can snap, freeze them, or yeah, snap, snap uh, expose them to uh, uh, aqueous methanol at minus 40. You can wash them at that as a liquid and you can remove the outside metabolites, and, uh, and there's reason to believe this is the minimally perturbing method of uh, preparing the cells, and then you put them in basically boiling alcohol. And then quantitate with, um, with NMR methods, such as the ones we just talked about, getting up to 1,300 measures um, per sample. Some examples of some of these internal metabolite concentrations. Now remember, these are not flux ratios, but actual metabolite concentrations of things like glucose 6-phosphate, ATP, pyruvate, so on, uh, can be correlated to genomics by the vehicle of gene knockouts. So we have wild type on the top of the far left, followed by de a deletion of HO. This is a homing endonuclease should have no metabolic consequences so at all. This is used as a control. It's a pseudo-wild type. This shows that the deletion method itself is not changing things, uh, the metabolism. And then as you go further and further down this list, you get more and more severe uh, expected effects on the ability of the organism, say, to produce energy, as exemplified by its ATP production. Now, if you have low ATP production, that means you have high residual levels of ADP, which is the other end of the energy spectrum. And so if you look down these columns, it's a little hard to see with all the, the, the clutter that's produced by the, the standard deviations. I wouldn't want them to get rid of those standard deviations. It's wonderful. But uh, anyway, you can summarize this by looking at the ATP to ADP ratio. That's a way of, you don't need ratios for this to work, but it's a way of accentuating the, this energy um, balance. And so you can see for the wild type you have about almost seven is the ratio of ATP to ADP, highly charged uh, in this high energy state. 
and as you get to these pet mutants, which are uh, mutations in the mitochondrial process, uh, you, you find the cell is becoming increasingly ineffective. Now these were all chosen uh, because uh, these were so-called silent mutations. The, the, the title of this paper says that you can get phenotypes by looking at the molecular analysis, quantitating the whole holistically, systematically all the metabolites for things that otherwise have no uh, phenotypes. Okay. Now this representation, as you start quantitating full proteomes, proteome interactions, proteome modifications, um, metabolites in their interactions, you start wanting to relay this information, summarize this information in the context of models. And just as last time, the upper left-hand portion of this uh, summary, uh, I emphasize that no model is exact. Uh, sometimes the people working the field convince themselves that it's more exact than, than, uh, than lower models. But it, it, every one of these, even the quantum mechanics, is a poor approximation of molecular dynamics and molecular mechanics has only spherical atoms represented. Some of the most challenging uh, cell models involve master's equations of stochastic. Now we're not talking about single atoms anymore, we're talking about single molecules. Still, it's too coarse for many uh, experiments. You can have phenomenological rates, uh, such as the ones we've been uh, talking about, represented in ordinary differential equations. How do you get the parameters that describe now concentration and time? Not single molecules, but sort of treating the, them as a, a bag of you know, a particular part of the cell or the whole cell having a particular concentration of, of molecules. And then we'll go on as, as we get into the network analysis in the next three lectures, we'll talk about some of these other models um, which have their, their roles. But let's just get at how would we get uh, some of the parameters that describe concentration and time. And when we talk about the formalism of these networks, uh, regulatory networks mainly are about binding, but they intimately connect with catalytic networks where you not only bind, but you actually change the covalent structure of molecules. And the simplest such case, single substrate going in, single product going out, is at the top of, of this uh, slide number 60. And here you can see that the enzyme E is a, typically a protein, and or but there are you know, RNA catalysts and so on. Um, but, the, but the property that's, that's emphasized here is that the enzyme is not consumed. As A goes in, it makes a, a covalent change from EA to EB. B is released, E is recycled, E is not consumed by the cycle, but A is consumed, B is produced. Uh, but let's look at it in a, in a different light. In a particularly interesting class of reactions, for example, those involving uh, 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 regulatory cascades, signal transduction, enzyme modifications. Um, here the enzyme now becomes substrate. The ATP is now no longer cons consumed in the whole cycle. ATP comes in, modifies the enzyme to a phosphoenzyme, and, the, and, a, and a, a accompanying reaction regenerates the ATP turns the ADP back into ATP. So the ATP, in a certain sense, is catalytic here, and now the enzyme is, is not is consumed, producing a phosphoenzyme. So it all depends on, when you're starting constructing these, these graphs, 
what is the node, whether the node is a substrate or the node is an enzyme, depends on, on, on how you look at it. And I do this, uh, you know, somewhat provocatively, so you'll think uh, about these networks, uh, not just as binding, but as catalysis, and not just the enzyme being the catalyst, but sometimes the substrate as well. Now, this is the simplest case of measuring kinetics. This is not equilibrium, this is kinetics. Um, and we're studying the, this plot on the far left-hand side of slide 61. Is as in substrate increases, the rate of production of product increases. You can, you can start out with, with zero product or, or, sm or small amounts. In, it used to be, historically, at the bottom, you, you would require, to do the experiment, you would require that the product be, be, be as close to zero as possible. You do initial rates, and you have this simple relationship where the increase in product was a simple function of uh, the 1 over uh, 1 plus uh, reciprocal of the substrate concentration. And this, as, as the substrate would increase, you'd eventually saturate the amount of enzyme that you have present in the experiment, and that would be the, the maximum velocity for that amount of enzyme, or Vmax. Uh, however, if you have a more full equation where you take into account all the players, at least in the simplest system, the, the, the forward velocity, dpdt, the uh, derivative of the product concentration uh, as a respect to time, this might be in moles per liter, it's going to go up with, as the substrate goes up. Um, more substrate means it will go faster in the forward direction towards product. But if you have some product, you'll have some product inhibition. You'll have a tendency to the, the, the uh, kinetics to go the opposite direction. So this is negative as a negative component with product. Um, the Ks and Kp are sometimes called Michaelis constants. As the substrate gets closer to the Michaelis constant, uh, this is basically related to the, the binding affinity for the substrate, and that's a natural sort of halfway point um, where the substrate is half, half uh, saturating is uh, roughly the, what the Ks is all about. Now, let's compare this very simple case where you have one substrate producing one product to a more typical case where you might have two substrates producing two products. And let's take this out of a real network, and we're going to show this real network in just a moment, and it's all slurry. Um, here you have uh, two substrates, ATP and F6P, going to two products, ADP and FDP. And you've got this, this same sort of form where you have a velocity of, uh, of this reaction, um, and it's a function of the reactants, F6P and ATP. And they, you find them in the numerator here. And you find these Michaelis constants in the, in the right places. But in addition, you find in the denominator this curious term that has these fourth powers. Well, we didn't see any fourth powers in the previous slide. Um, why are we getting fourth powers? It's because, and, and, and why is AMP in here? Uh, it's not even one of the reactants or the products. What's going on? Well, this is actually a regulatory phenomenon, allosteric, where you have a second site on the enzyme. One site does the catalytic magic, and the other one is regulated by some of for, for in the uh, infinite wisdom of the whole network, uh, is an important feedback. So AMP is related to ADP as a further step, and it feeds back on this enzyme, as does F6P and ATP and so forth. So all these, and this fourth power just says you want it to be cooperative. You want to have a, a nonlinear regulation. That's what's going on in this term. And it doesn't occur in the whole network, we'll show in the next slide, but it does occur at some key points, like this one, where the enzyme has two sites, catalytic and regulatory. 
And when you see these terms that are greater than linear, like the fourth power, that's sometimes referred to as the Hill coefficient and refers to the kind of the steepness of the, of the, instead of having this kind of curve, you have this kind of sigmoid curve, and the sig steepness of that is related to that power. Now let's look, if you compare, so this little piece, this phosphofructokinase step, um, is going to be uh, put in context of the entire network in the red blood cell, human red blood cell, right here in the upper left uh, quadrant of the circle. And this is the simplest, so that was, this, this is the simplest metabolic network that you'll be talking about. This mostly involves covalent uh, transitions or pumping across membranes. It treats the whole cell as a, as a kind of a uniform bag except with the membrane being a separate compartment. <laughs> And there are really two objectives of this. One is to produce ATP uh, so that you can run the pumps to keep the osmotic pressure uh, constant across the red blood cell membrane so that it maintains its shape. And the other is to maintain the redox at the right level so, as if, so you have a reducing atmosphere, uh, reducing uh, uh, the hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is in intimate contact with oxygen and so there is a certain low level of, of oxidation of the iron rather than just binding to the iron to make methemoglobin, which is not a good physiological state. So you want to have this reducing potential to get it back to the correct oxidation state so it will bind oxygen. Uh, so you have a little bit of purine metabolism here, uh, quite a bit of metabolism, uh, simple glycolysis, not uh, ox oxidative phosphorylation or anything like that. This glycolysis produce reducing potential and a little ATP. And these 40 or so enzymatic reactions can be modeled with about 200 parameters. All these 200 parameters have been measured accurately by purifying each of the met uh, metabolites and enzymes. And uh, this has been reduced to an ordinary differential equation model that has been evolving since the 70s. If, you, if we look... Uh, at uh, slide 64, at this phosphofructokinase, we have the same form that we had a couple of slides back. Here's the fourth power term in the denominator, having MP as a regulatory molecule, and then you have the Michaelis constants and so forth explicitly stated here um, in the numerator for the, uh, for the substrates F6P and ATP. And with and you have a similar equation for every single enzyme step in, this, in that whole network in the red blood cell model. And uh, in green are the, are the concentrations. At any given time point, this can be either dynamic or steady state. At any given time point, you'll have uh, green for the metabolic concentrations and red for the fluxes uh, indicated by the enzyme names. And you can run this as a simulation for the red blood cell and, uh, and see all the interesting questions about robustness and uh, and optimality and so forth. This is this is even though this is a very mature model, there still is lots to be done even in this very simplest system. Now we're going to go on to more complicated systems in the next three lectures on networks. Um, but for today, we've basically tried to integrate the protein either absolute or ratios with RNA measurements and with metabolite interactions protein post-synthetic modifications. So until next time, thank you very much.